Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show. It's brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, coming up on the show this evening, we're going to be picking up on the controversy around renewable energy versus coal and just how much of a red herring the threat of jobs losses in the coal sector are relative to job opportunities being created in the renewable sector. We'll catch up with Johan van der Marwe, the Joint Chief Executive at African Rainbow Capital. This is Patrice Mutsepe's venture, and he took his colleagues, his ex-colleagues from Sunlam, uh, Johan van der Marwe, and both Johan van Sale, and he worked within the upper echelons of Sunlam. Jan van Sale, of course, is the chairman of Sunlum nowadays and also on the board of Steinhoff. I wonder if Jan van der Marwe has been carrying quite a lot of the can himself at African Rainbow Capital in recent months. Now, uh, Spotify launching in South Africa. What's the big deal? I wonder. Um, this is quite fun. Um, and I apologize if I trigger your, your mobile device. Hey, Siri, play music from Spotify. Let's see what she says. I can't play from Spotify. Siri won't play from Spotify because Siri is Apple Music, of course. I wonder whether or not that is one of the issues that is going to afflict um, Spotify in South Africa. We'll also look at the sacking of the U.S. Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, one of the shortest uh, tenures of a Secretary of State in U.S. history. And then one of the Levy brothers joining us this evening, Blue Label Telecoms. Let's learn all about them and their 45% stake in Cell C this evening. The continent's biggest smart card distributor took a direct stake in Cell C last year. How's that working out for them? All of that is coming up on tonight's Money Show. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Here's your fast fact question. Help you warm up for a brutal biz quiz this Friday night. Who comes, who comes in a variety of shapes and sizes has got different jobs maybe president, vice president, sometimes wears a hijab, can represent role models from Frida Kahlo to Amelia Earhart. What is the name of that baseline character? 31702 a multi-faceted character, various shapes and sizes, could be president, vice president, could wear a hijab and has been known to represent role models from Frida Kahlo to Amelia Earhart. What is the name of that character? 31702 and 31567. 702 The Money Show Call Bruce on 011 883-0702. Big story today has been the court order blocking the signing of contracts between government and ESCOM and 27 independent power producers. For those IPPs, it must be desperately frustrating. For NUMSA and Transform South Africa, it's a question of jobs. Tabang Odat is the Acting Director, Deputy Director General for Policy and Planning from the Department of Energy, where he's the Chief Director for Electricity at the Department of Energy. Um, the fact that there's been this postponement, at least until the 27th of March when this matter goes to court. What does it mean for the IPP sector, Tabang? Bruce, uh, good evening. What it means for the IPP sector is that the 
signing has been delayed by two weeks uh, pending the hearing by the court on the 27th of March. What we have committed as government is that our process were legal. What we followed was above board. We are now going to hear the arguments from both NUMSA and Transform RSA as to the reasons why they believe we cannot follow our own rules and regulations. But we are very confident, Bruce, that all that we did is legal and it's above board and we can defend it in court. Tell me about the jobs they're concerned, particularly NUMSA would be concerned about jobs in the coal mining industry. Bruce, without running the, the risk of uh, getting into the uh, arguments that will be raised on the 27th, what we understand so far is that there will be a, a suite of plants that ESCOM will be decommissioning. Uh, these are coal plants that were constructed approximately 20 or so years ago. Now, as with any engineering design, there is an end of life for the plant. And for safety reasons and other technical reasons, these are due to be decommissioned. So what likely to happen, Bruce, is that the mines that are supplying the coal to those plants will obviously be affected by this decommissioning. However, I must say that we, together with labor as well as with business, we have to enter into those discussions, Bruce, as to how we save those jobs. How do we make sure that those towns that were created as a result of these mining um, you know, popping up, how do we make sure that those towns don't become ghost towns? We are, uh, we have raised it uh, at Netlec, actually by NUMSA, they raised it at Netlec, and we have responded to their concerns, but we need to uh, separate the two issues, please. We are talking about new power plants that will bring in the needed additional capacity to the grid. During the first two years of construction, there will be about 60,000 jobs that these uh, renewable IPPs will create. Uh, the, the jobs that will be created will obviously benefit majority South Africans, especially in those communities where the plants will be located. So we need to separate the two issues. On one hand, you have old uh, coal-fired power stations that for technical reasons, they were designed to run for 20 years, 25 years, some of them, and they are due to be decommissioned. This has got nothing to do with government introducing new projects that will obviously stimulate the economy and create more jobs. Now, I, we, I heard one of the representatives from Transform, Transform South Africa earlier um, saying that South Africa is plentiful coal and we should be exploiting that resource, the questions of health, the questions of all of that sort of thing too. What we've learned from Mudupi and Kusile is we're not particularly good at building coal-fired power stations um, and that they, we've had massive cost overruns. Is there a, a direct economic benefit benefit in addition to the jobs that you say will be created to doing to bringing IPPs on stream rather than ESCOM going off on a tangent and building a new generation of coal-fired power stations or, or nuclear for that matter? Bruce, there are two issues that you are raising from your question. The first is what is the government policy in relation to new generation technology. We have currently a policy document uh, which was approved by cabinet in 2010, and it clearly outlines that government is pro the following technologies. In that document, we mentioned the renewable IPPs, we, we mentioned the coal power stations, we mentioned the gas, we mentioned hydro as well as nuclear. Until that document has been revised and updated by, by uh, the department and approved by cabinet, we, that's the policy that we are implementing. Now, when it comes to how 
those projects are executed. That's the issue that led us to cost overruns in relation to the three power stations that you mentioned. But we must separate the two issues. We Currently, there is a policy that outlines the energy mix across various technologies, and that's what the department, together with ESCOM and other affected parties, are implementing. Tabango Odad, thank you very much. Acting Director, Deputy Director General in the Department of Energy, where he is the Chief Director for Electricity. Nazmira Mula listening to that, co-head of Fixed Income and Investec Asset Management. And one of the things that she does is she takes uh, a portion of your pension money and she invests it into projects, whether those be uh, power projects or water projects, whatever the case might be. In this case, you're interested, I'm sure, Nazmira, as to what the energy mix in the future looks like. Why is an energy mix so important in a country that's operated off the back of one small nuclear power station at Coburg and coal for decades. Good evening, Bruce. I think you want some diversity in your energy mix. South Africa survived quite well with coal for a large number of years, but given the fact that the world's becoming more conscious about clean energy, renewable energy, um, we've seen the benefits of the South African Renewable Program rounds one to three, which have been signed, which are already producing power. And let's not forget the fact that all of these projects were started well after Madupi was started, and they came online well before Madupi has come online. From a cost perspective, what makes most sense? I think that the cost of renewables has declined significantly over the course of the last decade. So a decade ago, you argue that coal was cheaper and that's what it was. Right now, once you add the costs of making coal clean, which means the filters that are necessary, possibly um, storing the emissions um, from coal-fired power stations, you end up with roughly the same levelized cost. Okay, roughly the same sort of cost. So why bother going down this path if it is going to cost jobs? When you, as an economist, um, put on your, your if, if but maybe, yes but, yes maybe not, uh, maybe not hat, um, looking at all sides of the argument, what is, makes the most sense for South Africa? Yes, it's nice to have an energy mix. Is it, absolutely, uh, is it, an, absolute, is it an absolute necessity? The Deputy Director General before me put it very well when he said, we are conflating issues. Eskom is planning to decommission old power stations that are inefficient, that are expensive to run, whose useful life has expired. There are knock-on consequences from that in the form of the mines that supply them that we need to manage and we need to deal with. I think we need to explore the idea of Um, the viability of at least some of these mines being able to export their coal because South Africa still has capacity to export coal. That's a separate issue from what we should be relying on in the future for our energy mix. So what should we be relying on? What should the energy mix look like 10, 15 years from now? I think that South Africa has plentiful sunshine and I think the costs of renewable energy are going to continue to decline. What we've seen in terms of solar panels, in terms of technology around that, is continuing um, cuts in um, the cost of solar, much as we've seen in computing power over the course of the last decade. 
So it just gets cheaper and cheaper every year. The main problem with solar is time shifting the energy um, produced. So it, you produce it all in the middle of the day when you have plentiful sunshine and you need peak energy consumption in South Africa is in the early evening. So how do you deal with that? So we need storage to deal with that. But even battery storage is becoming increasingly more affordable. So when we talk about the future and we're planning 10, 15, 20 years into the future, batteries have to be something that will be viable, that households will have, in addition to some sort of large-scale industrial storage. But in a jobs, uh, in a jobs light country like South Africa, 30,000 jobs is a lot. And NUMSA maintains that 30,000 jobs are at risk as a result of the switch in energy mix and getting people out of getting ESCOM off its coal habit and into a, a renewable habit. 30,000 jobs is the number of jobs our entire coal industry employs, and the bulk of those are employed in exporting mines. So that's a, red, that's, a, that's, a, that's a red herring. Man. That, that's a number that's being abused by the trade union. That's exactly. That is not the number of jobs that are only um, held by people working for tied mines where you're likely to see decommissioning. So I think it is a red herring, and that's the first thing we need to start with. Nasmira Muller, thank you, co-head of Fixed Income and Investic Asset Management. It just makes so much sense to get that energy mix more diversified, get the storage of, of solar power done better than it can be done at the moment, and you get a far more reliable energy mix. You never want to go down to a place where we run out of energy again because there's been underinvestment, because government dragged its feet, because there couldn't be a decision made on what uh, on who should be supplying the energy and who should be distributing the energy. The time for indecision. I run the risk of sounding like Sean Abraham is over. The Money Show. The Markets. Markets down at the close of business today. There was a slight pullback on the JSE. Nuspaps was up, but not too much else. Wayne McCurry is our market commentator. He is with Ashburton Investments. And African Rainbow Capital, first results out yes. of African Rainbow Capital. Are, are you overwhelmed, enthused, underwhelmed? Just no, a touch? I, I actually think they're delivering on what they said they're going to do. I mean, when you look when you look at what African Rainbow Capital is, is it's selling its BEE credentials to companies that need the BEE credentials and they've got capital. So they had eight billion to start off with, four billion invested, four billion cash, and they invested another two billion. The net asset value was up about six percent, I think. But the market liked the results. The share was up quite strongly today. Yeah, it, it did. It's an investment company. It looks like it's it's sort of condemned to taking minority stakes in, in everything in big businesses yeah. into the future. Does it become another sort of Remgro type investment vehicle? Then? I suppose it does at the end of the day. I mean, when you look at they they in everything except pet food, just about. Yeah, so far. So far, yeah. <laughs> so that might that might be just around the, around the corner. No, it's an extraordinary but that's thing. What, I mean, but that's what they but that's what they're there to do. 28% of their business in telecommunications, to a 17 in business process outsourcing, which is call centers. There's mining, construction, and energy. There's property. There's agriculture um, and, and a couple of other things, including rain. Yes. Michael Yordan's old uh, new business, rain. Yes. They've got 20% stake in there. So they have put, are putting fingers into lots no, of different and, and South going, African And they're going into parts. banks, and they, in, the, in the new banks, they're going into what's it called? Uh, time. time, yeah. The Australian so, mob, yeah. Yeah, so they... They are well diversified, but they've got a product that's needed in the market, and that's black economic empowerment, shareholder credentials, and the the big difference is that they've actually got capital to put in. Yeah, and that's the and money. That's, that, and, that's and money that Patrice Mutsepe made out of his mining ventures and, and out of Sunland. And that gives you an advantage because mm. you can just go in. And, and it's and really good, and you normally get these holdings at a slight discount. 
Mm. And that's fantastic. Uh, and it's also nice to see somebody actually investing in the South African economy, putting yes. their money where their mouth is. Um, in even the dark times last yeah. year when it looked like there was well, no Well, maybe hope. that was the time to buy. Yeah. The hindsight. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And you were saying so. Um, <laughs> Steinhoff um, selling a big yes. piece of its cap industrial they need money. holdings. They've raised about 3.7, 3.8 billion, billion rand. rand. Yeah. Now, the problem is to get it out of South Africa. I still don't know how they stand with the Reserve Bank and permission because, remember, cap also repaid all of the Steinhoff holdings, loans that they had, and it's also a significant amount of money, and they've redeemed some South African debt as well with those proceedings. Now they've got more money, um, but we obviously will find out at some stages the money's needed in Europe. It's not needed in South Africa. Mm. It's needed in Europe, and at some stage it's got to get there to help out. Yeah, so um, Steinhoff continued to be under pressure yes. and selling a small piece of that cap investment in order to raise the three and a half billion rand in capital that it needs. Aspen Pharmacare, what is corroding Aspen? I don't know because the results weren't bad. No? The outlook looks good. Look, Aspen is milk formula in China. That is the future of Aspen. I mean, they made many, many acquisitions and a lot of the acquisitions seem to have worked quite well, but they're pumping serious money into this infant formula in China and that is the next if that works it will actually be incredibly successful for Aspen but to be honest I don't know why the share price is eroding here. it's eating new lows yeah 247 yeah. rand yeah. a share today I mean new lows relative to recent history yeah, in, in, in the last year yes yeah. yes um, is it one worth buying I think so yeah we certainly got some and we'll stick with it and We'll have to see how the milk formula in China pans out. That's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, they, yeah. um, if you go into the expensive baby shops, you'll see the Aspen brand on local. Uh, on oh, I forget the, the brands um, that they sell in South Africa, but they do high-end, complicated Correct. stuff, lactose intolerance and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and, yeah, that, that it's made, it makes a fortune. Capitec, it, it's um, really ignoring any real concerns that the market may have about it. Continues yes. to see gains day after day after Correct. day. You know, this might turn out that, that the Viceroy report was actually incorrect because the market certainly seems to think that and Viceroy has gone very, very quiet around around all of this. And they seem to be making money. They seem to have satisfied the market that everything is, in fact, in order in their financials and they're accounting in the right way and they're not double counting bad loans for new business and all of these things and switching. So the market seems to like it. And you know, as we said before, many occasions they have got a little niche there. Well, not little, it's big now. It is. But they're in the niche. They're in the niche and they've built that niche over just over 20 years mm. and, and run very well in it. It's, it's interesting how um, the, the VBS curatorship hasn't shaken no, the markets no. one little bit. It's very, very small. Look, it's, it's, I mean, I know there are all the circumstances behind it, but banks are entering a sweet spot now. We're going to get interest rate cuts from the Reserve Bank. The economy is recovering. Maybe we see 2% this year and more next year what? in a stronger rand with Aren't lower inflation. It's, it's ideal for the banks. It's actually ideal. Loan growth will go up nicely and profits will go up nicely if current circumstances prevail. And it would be a, give the economy a hell of a boost. To oh, get yes, a two, two so. percentage point cut in interest rates would change yeah. the no, economic dynamic. Two cuts, not two, two cuts. Oh, two I beg your pardon. You see, oh, you see, now oh, I'm getting excited. So, so glad that I clarified that because I thought yes. you'd been you'd been having It'd a be very, very good bullish, road yeah. trip. Yeah. No, 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 no. Now on a road trip now, but now only two twenty five percent. Oh, that's not nearly as exciting. Well, maybe it's more. We hope it's more. Yeah. It could be. You never know. Most certainly, if we can maintain rand strength and we have yeah. the inflation staying uh, below the midpoint in yeah. the in the reserve bank, and, and, and the reserve bank in their calculations will exclude the effect of the VAT increase yeah. in inflation because that is a one-off and that's got nothing to do with domestic demand. Yeah. So 
even though we've had the VAT increase, the net result of the VAT increase, because it's sorted out the government finances, you might actually get more of a benefit by the interest rate coming down and the economy picking up that actually more than counteracts the increase in VAT. Maybe. So the increase in VAT, surprisingly enough, might actually have been good news. Imagine that. Yeah. Wayne McCurry from Ashburton Investments. Thank you very much indeed for coming in this evening. I asked you earlier, who comes in a variety of shapes and sizes, has different jobs, has been president, vice president, sometimes wears a hijab, and can represent role models from Frida Kahlo to Amelia Earhart. Wayne McCurry never played with Barbie dolls very clearly. He grew up on the tough streets of Kimberley, so no, he didn't. Barbie, the American icon, often criticised of promoting unrealistic body image and consumerist lifestyle, but Mattel, the toy maker which owns Barbie, has been working very hard to try and keep and um, get Barbie relevant. And, of course, with Toys R Us uh, closing so many of its US stores, it's a tough break for Mattel, which uh, sells 14% of its products is in the retailer in North America. So, yeah, it's going to take a big knock. The whole of the toy industry is going to suffer as a result of the collapse of Toys R Us in the United States. As far as we can tell and what they tell us in South Africa, they're actually still expanding in this market. But the Internet, far more advanced and far more people buying toys online in the U.S., and that's hurting Barbie. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, maiden results today from African Rainbow Capital, the company that has its genesis in the back pocket of Patrice Mozepe. And he appointed Johan van Sale, the chairman of Sunlum, former, uh, the chairman of Sunlum now, former chief executive at Sunlum, and the guy who used to run the investments business at Sunlum, Johan van der Marwe, is joint chief executives. Johan van der Marwe on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. Um, you've been, you're reporting assets worth 9 billion rand today, 2 billion rand in cash. You've invested seven billion so far, um, but to have things slow down a bit, Johan. I mean, you hit the ground running so hard and fast, uh, and things seem to have gone a bit quiet. Yeah, not really, uh, Bruce. Uh, it's uh, it's been uh, flat out uh, since the listing as well. So, so at the listing time, we actually reversed assets of a, a close to four and a half billion into the. Uh, Portfolio, and then for the last four months, we've actually invested about 2.3 billion um, in of the cash that we raised, and there's about 2 billion left of the cash. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's not how quick you do it, it's uh, how good the investments are, and only time will tell. Eh? Um, out of that 2.3 billion in the, in the last couple of months, a big chunk of that's gone into what is now your biggest investment, and that is a, a stake, a 20% stake in the wireless internet business started by Michael Jordan and Paul Harris called rain can you really compete do you think can they compete and you benefit uh, from the fact that um, they are now going into a highly contested uh, space it's a highly contested space but you know the spectrum that they own is, is really very geared towards the data and we've seen that both uh, Vodacom and and also MTN in the last six months or so see that they now earn more out of their data than out of voice and this spectrum is really there for the data side and uh, um, it is it is incredible that can be done we've even got a, a deal signed with vodacom where they can roam on on uh, on our spectrum of of the data side 
etc. And, and we can roll out our equipment on 5,000 of their towers, which we've done about 2,000 now. Sure. Uh, you, you start, you, you've done these 40 investments in quick succession that goes across telecommunications and call centres and mining and construction and energy and property and agriculture. I mean, it's, it's probably the most diversified um, investment holding company listed on the JSE. Do you, do you get a sense that you've got a, a handle on each and every single one of these investments? Is it even possible? Um, so how we want to, uh, how we run the business is to really have it in two separate parts. The one is very much a diversified financial services, you know, and I've, I've obviously worked with Johan van Sale for many years, and he's a guy that inherited a Sundam and he made it much better. So it's fantastic to see a guy with the type of vision that he has to have a clean sheet of paper and building a diversified financial services business. Obviously, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think we're putting those building blocks in place. And there we've got the building blocks from insurance, being life, general and health, uh, asset management, specialist finance and also banking. Then on the other side of the business is what we call the diverse investments or whether you want to call it a diversified investment trust or whatever. There we're actually looking at the different building blocks. And there, as you mentioned, you know, it's from telecoms to agri to property uh, to mining, etc. But in those areas, Bruce, what we do, we identify partners in the business. We identify who we believe are the best jockeys in the industry, and then we partner with them, and we want them to have skin in the game. We want to be aligned with them. Obviously, we bring the money, but they put their money down as well. So on the property side, we with Jonathan Bay on the one hand, and with Atterbury Properties uh, in, in, in another one. On the mining side, we uh, teamed up with uh, Sipun Kozi, the ex-CEO of Exaro, and also Bernard Swanepoel. And they, they put their money down, we put our money down. On the, um, on, on the telecom side, it's obviously, as you mentioned, Paul Harris, uh, Michael Jordan, uh, GT Ferreira, but also now Willem Roos from Outsurance joined cool, as uh, the CEO. Uh, so, you know, he's buying in there. So, you know, he's, uh, he's did, in did, there as well. So we, we, we yeah. actually partner with jo- those jockeys and, and, and don't try to, to say that we know everything in those different areas. But, but how much day-to-day contact do you have with these guys? Because these are all um, highly competent, very experienced people who have run and grown successful businesses over, over recent decades. Do you, do you have board seats in some of these places? Is there even time to have that sort of oversight? Or do you just hand over the responsibility and say, we've got a 20% stake in you, don't lose money? No, <laughs> I wish it was that easy. And most, in some cases, we can perhaps do that. But for each and every investment, we've got a principal person in, you know, responsible for that. We've got a, an alternate, we've got a resource, and we've got a board seat. Sure. And sometimes even more than one board seat. Obviously, African Rainbow Capital now consists of, of about 20 people already. Uh, we don't see, uh, think that it will be much more than that. But, you know, making these investments is one thing, but obviously looking after them, making sure that we get involved in the strategy, etc., is also important. Interestingly, you know, I, if you take Willem Roos from Rain, he's actually sharing offices with us in, uh, in, uh, in Stellenbosch, the same with Acorn Agri, which is our, our agri, really, and, and also the business process outsourcing side uh, of AfriGem. So they're all sharing offices with us there. We don't try to run their businesses, but it's very nice to have the people just right next door to you and walk in there and understand what's going on. They come and ask and bounce something off you, etc. So that's not with all our businesses, but those three we actually share offices with. And the thing that you've got to offer is the empowerment credentials brought by Patrice Motsepe for many of these yes. companies. 
Indeed, exactly. That's what they want. Not only do they need and want empowerment, but they want credible empowerment, and they want empowerment with money. And with a team that can add some value, even on, not on, a, on, a, on an operational level always, but on a strategic level that can open doors and can... Uh, you know, can help on the strategic direction of those uh, businesses. A slightly unfair question, but one I must ask. How much t- are you seeing of your co-chief executive, uh, Johan van Sale, at the moment? He's got his hands full at Steinhoff and other places. Yeah, I think Johan was one of the, let's call it, two independent directors there. But he was on none of the committees there. He was only on the advisory board. So, And he's, he was only on that uh, board for just over a year when, when all of this happened, yeah. etc. He's, he's a, quite a resilient guy. I think uh, it took uh, a bit of his December holiday, et cetera, but I can tell you that uh, he's, he's in the ARC offices before me in the mornings and he leaves after me in the, in the evening. So he's an incredible, incredibly hard worker, et cetera. But, you know, it is something that, uh, but I think that will be sorted out soon and, uh, and then we'll carry on. I don't think it has really affected so, ARC in that way. So it's not, pos- it's not posing a distraction? No, no, I don't think so. A slight one, but a very slight one. Johan van der thank you. The African Rainbow Capital Investments Joint Chief Executive. Um, yeah, what a fascinating story, taking money that uh, Patrice Matsepe has earned over many years through empowerment deals and applying that capital as a BEE partner, then using the intellectual capacity of Fonsel and van der the Johans, um, to take uh, minority stakes in a whole host of businesses, 40 investments made so far, and there's another 2 billion rand in cash. And this is a quintessentially South African business investing in South African businesses. It's a good story. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. So Siri will play you on demand the Money Show podcast, if you ask nicely, but will not play you songs from Spotify. That's not part of her job description. How do you consume music? Um, do you still flick through your CD collection? Maybe you sift through your vinyls, or maybe like the cool kids, you've realized you don't need to own the music you listen to, and you're happy to stream it. Apple's got a great service, but the world's biggest global streaming service, Spotify, has officially launched in South Africa. Cliff DeVitt is a co-founder of Dexterity Digital. Is this um, the best day in your music-consuming history, Cliff, or are you underwhelmed? Hey, Bruce. Yeah, I think it's a very auspicious day for South Africa, quite frankly. I think the fact that probably the leader in the music streaming industry has chosen to launch in South Africa is really important for us. And I think it's a it's an affirmation, certainly, on how important the African market is and certainly how important the South African market is for many digital players in the industry. Now, why in the 21st century, with a, a borderless internet, do companies like Spotify have to launch in a country like South Africa? Yeah, I think, you know, everybody assumes that because you're digital and because the internet can get everywhere, that really it should be instantly available. But I think when you when you get into the depths of some of this, you realize that you know local laws, certainly copyright, uh, local privacy laws in in, in computer terms, uh, things like poppy, etc., really need to be recognized. And I think specifically in music, there's been a lot of talk over the years about how artists get paid and how royalties are are actually paid out and calculated. And these have lots of local consequences. So I think in many cases services like this, although it's easy to, to, to access them through the internet, the intricacies of actually legally launching them in countries certainly take time. Um, but I think when it's done well, and, and if you look at the, the services that have launched here, it's, it's done well for local business. Um, you know, Spotify claim they've paid over 8 billion euros out last year to artists. And I think they pride themselves in actually 
promoting local artists. So when they do it, they don't just bring the international market into the country. They also liberate the local market onto the international stage. And for me, that is incredibly encouraging. Uh, and it also it, it deals uh, quite convincingly with this idea of pirated music. People will still download and steal music. But if you can stream the stuff at a reasonable cost and Spotify in South Africa launching for less than you can buy it for in the United States, um, it, it kind of encourages you to be honorable about it. Spot on. I think, you know, if you look at the trends with consumers, many of them will do things out of convenience. So I think there's always this tipping point where you where a consumer has a perceived value. And when the cost um, is below is, is equitable to the value you're receiving, uh, piracy obviously disappears or goes down. And many studies have been done on streaming music services. Um, and they claim, um, probably rightfully so, that in many cases they revived the declining sales in the music industry. I think the 2015 sort of 2016 era, the music industry was really, really dipping in, in overall sales. And the streaming services in many cases have listed those music sales. I think in South Africa specifically, if we look at sort of the economics in South Africa, it's really encouraging to see that a, a service like this could bring South African artists onto the global stage. You know, they claim they have you know, 150 million subscribers if we could just promote some of South African artists to that subscriber base, I think that is really good news for business in South Africa. And unlike playing your music for nothing on the SABC, um, you can get it paid. You can be paid for it. Um, as Spotify <laughs> streams it on your behalf. They've got a free offering, which means you've got to listen to some advertising, but that makes it stand out relative to other players. Is Spotify the best music access option on earth? You, you know, you make an incredibly good point on that on that free offer. And, and if you dig into that a little bit, you realize that their free offer, like you said, is subsidized through advertising. But that doesn't mean that it's free to the artist. So I think, again, the encouraging thing is that even if subscribers are listening to the free offer, the artists are still getting money and royalties for, for users, uh, users listening to their music. I also think if you kind of look at our market in an emerging market context, I think that free offer is really, really good for a, for a, for a country where maybe people can't afford even the 60 rand a month and allows them maybe to get into digital services and understand how they work. Of course, they want you to upgrade to the premium service so that they could make a little more money on you. But I think they do pride themselves on public being one of the best music streaming services out there. And they, they put a, a lot of work into curate, curating playlists, so making music discoverable. Uh, you know, as you get into this digital space, you realize sometimes it's not access anymore. It's actually trying to find the good stuff in that 30-odd million tracks. But that's the trouble. It's like going to the CD shop as a kid exactly. and trying to find your favorite album. It's a nightmare. Cliff Tavit, thank you. He is the co-founder of Dexterity Digital. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show. It's eight minutes past seven on this Tuesday evening. We're going to be uh, talking at half past seven this evening. Get an insight into a company that we um, talk about often on The Money Show, uh, but we seldom have time to talk to the executives when it comes to um, the results, and that is the guys behind Cell C. Brett Levy joins me this evening, Chief Executive of Blue Label Telecoms. The guys who, every time they did a deal, I don't know if they still do it, um, they'd clap a bottle of Blue Label and then keep the bottle in the boardroom. I don't know if the boardroom's full of bottles um, and I wonder how many they had to drink when they bought 45% of Cell C. Not in order to oil the wheels of the deal, you understand, but just it was a big transaction. On the next Money Show, I'll feature Leslie Donna Williams as this week's shapeshifter. She's the chief executive of the Tsimo Hong Digital Innovation Precinct at VITS and Colin Cullis joins us in studio with Business Unusual. Plus, of course, all your regular updates on markets and all the big money stories of the day.
Anthony Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Isakele Marutlule is the chief executive and founder of Marutlule and Company. It's an ideation agency. That's what you call yourselves. Yeah, strategy and ideas lab, Bruce. Uh, so it's fueled by sugar. Yes. Fueled by sugar and caffeine. <laughs> and great energy and problems. There we go. Love yeah. big problems. Now listen, we need you to do heroes and zeros for us this evening. And you have delivered to us... Possibly very little advertising gets a physical reaction out of me other than a retching reaction when it's really awful. But I was overwhelmed by the power of your hero this evening. It actually, my skin prickled and I can feel the hairs on the backs of my hands stand up. Tell me what, why you like our hero. So now, and as a, as a marketer, I'm truly envious because this is the one piece of advertising you wish you could have done. You're like, I so wish I could have done this. So this is Nike and Serena Williams talking about until we all win. And it's the first, it's one of the few pieces of advertising where there's a complete resonance between the personal brand and the corporate brand. So Serena has never fitted into a box, right? She's always been told all these things about you're too big, you're too small, you're too dark, you're too heavy, you're too everything. And she's never walked into a box. And here's a piece of communication that says, I don't care what you think of me. I know that I'm the goat, you know, and yeah. Zara had to figure out that goat was an animal, but greatest of all times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to listen to the ad because everybody needs to understand why it is that we're, we're excited about this particular yeah. piece of marketing. And then we can, we, can, we can slice and dice it into bits because it deserves to be sliced and diced. Yes. I've never been the right kind of woman oversized and overconfident, too mean if I don't smile, too black for my tennis whites, too motivated for motherhood. But I'm proving time and time again, there's no wrong way to be a woman. It's astonishing. Of course you love it. Of course I should. But also, you know what, Bruce, like in this climate where all of us are being pro-women all of a sudden, uh, all of a Sunday, as my niece says, (laughs) what's really affirming is this idea that for as long as you think there's one lens of becoming a woman, that's quite limited and limiting, right? So there is a diversity to this experience of being a woman. And Serena is just one example of how you can be multiple in that area. I would love to know the backstory as to how the process worked, whether Nike contacted and said, we want you to be authentic, come up with something. Because that's too good. Um, you know, it's, it's too good not to be contrived, if you know what I mean. No, and but also it's, it's, it's true. It, yeah, of course it is. But it's, it's her, it's her voice, it's everything that people have criticized her yes. about over her, over her entire professional life, which spans more than two decades. Yes. She's been in the public eye and people have said this stuff to her and she's owning it. And Nike is using that to say it's okay to be individual. It's okay not to fit into... The, into the cookie-cutter image of what a woman is supposed to be. Exactly. But also, here's here's an example of a brand that truly fits. So there's nothing contrived about it. There's no, they're not trying to back-write the story and, and insert her into it. This is her life. This is who she has been, and this is what her life has become. So for me, this is about 
celebrating a sense of becoming and overcoming something and being self-defining and self-starting. So much of advertising spend millions to create a sense of authenticity, um, which immediately you failed because yes. <laughs> there's nothing authentic about a fa- about something that's been created in an ideas lab. Uh, um, but but here is something that is as authentic as anything I've ever heard in advertising. Yeah, it's the closest we'll come to something fantastic. I mean, I can't think of another example that moved me the, the same way that, of course, I'm a woman. I'm a woman, mm. so I have a natural gender bias on the subject. But the, but this feels like an alignment, like a, the perfect, perfect alignment between the personal brand and yeah. the corporate brand. No, well done, Nike, Nike and Serena Williams. It really is a spectacular piece of advertising. It really is. And a strong brand positioning for both yes. uh, Serena and for Nike. Win-win. And I'm sure she got paid for it too. Um, and then last week, Andy was very excited about a campaign that SAB had done or Anheuser-Busch InBev had done for its um, very macho black label brand, sort of saying, we, we know we're part of the drinking problem in South Africa, but we want to encourage responsible drinking. And there was a wonderful activation that happened at the Soweto uh, soccer derby at, uh, at FAB Stadium. Uh, and people came out and sat and there was a real sense of joy around Black Label and the brand of Black Label. But not everything that SAB does is glorious, according to you. That is true, but also seven days is a long time in advertising. <laughs> it's longer than in politics, and that's I long. I know this, I know this, but but I'm sorry, Andy, but this time I'm going to give them a, a zero uh, for the one-litre ad that talks about for all sorts of brews. I mean, I'm not a brew, so I don't know what that conversation is about. But I, I recognize that strategically you're saying this litre variant is for all sorts, all sorts of people. But so so S- SAB is- has got Castle, and, yeah. and, and Castle has been sold in different formats over many years, 330 mil cans yes. and, and then dumpy bottles, and then there were 375 right. mil bottles, and then there were the 750 mil right. quarts, and those were, you get two glasses of beer out of that. Now they've got... Uh, a one liter beer, yes, um, which is which is a new format, and they're saying this brew for all brews, brew. Yeah, it's a bazooka for all brews, but it's totally lost on me because you you have like okay, now, 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 but is the castle beer drinker a brew? <laughs> who drinks his brew and digs the fact that the brew is big. And that other uh, brews are drinking along with him. Yeah. Her it, yeah. And it, but things, if you're drinking, and, and this is from personal experience, if you're drinking a beer out of a 750 mil quart, the last 100 mils is undrinkable just because it goes flat, flat and warm and blah. How does the one litre format work? I don't like the format. I'm sorry. Well, I never mind the format. Mm. I just don't like how you're communicating about it because here's what here's what it is. I've lost the benefit of why a one litre variant is necessarily the thing that I should be drinking. Because you're not a brew. Exactly. But I'm sitting there going, how many brews do you need to go through a litre of Casablanca? <laughs> so that so that for me just didn't work. I, I think that we lost an opportunity to communicate how. You, maybe five people can drink it versus types of brews. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't resonate. Yeah, I mean, where, where pizza has been such a strong category in South Africa is this notion of sharing. If yes. you created the one litre format, the 1.25 litre format, and everybody can have a glass of beer, yeah. and everybody gets a taste, and everybody gets to have a com- sense of community around a single beer, then you've got then you're positioning a new format. Exactly. This is just like he's going to have a flat bottom half of his no, beer. No, but also because SAB for the longest time has been the sort of glue that creates community so if you remember mm-hmm. 100 years ago we had the the ad on the rooftop in new york oh, that yeah, was lots of these lovely, lovely so why brand then building, don't yeah. you want to stick to that glue that just says we are all about community so bring people together versus 
people standing at the door and going, brew, bra, brewski, braski, brewski, but stop me anytime, Bruce. No, 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 you told me all about me. It's wonderful. Marutlele, <laughs> uh, thank you very much. She's the chief executive and founder of Marutlule and Company. Her hero, a fantastic ad featuring Serena Williams with Nike and I'm afraid SAB after being last week's hero, you get the big fat zero for your all types of brew campaign. 702 The Money Show Call Bruce on 011-883-0702 So let us uh, look at uh, I've got a great question So Peter says Can you please have a discussion on sugary beverages levy How much more will a Coke cost Will it apply to Milo etc um, That is a good question And we've done the sums quickly um, Hogan Lovells have done the sums Now if you trust Hogan Lovells to do the sums That's great A can of sugary soda will cost South African consumers An additional 11% more that's pretty significant. 11% more for a can of cool drink. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, I wonder if it's going to do enough to dissuade people from drinking those fizzy drinks. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. Africa Business Report brought to you by Export Credit Insurance Corporation, your export risk partner. It's 21 minutes past seven. Oh, it's like being in the presence of royalty. La Ratombele is in studio. She's getting <laughs> married soon, taking time out from wedding preparations, visits to Ghana, visits to Rwanda. She's the presenter of the Africa Business Report with BBC World News. It's lovely to have you in the country. Are you traveling a lot? I am traveling a lot, but as you said, I'm getting married, so I need to wind that down a little bit. But uh, how does, just come how back. does the BBC feel about that? Interestingly, they're really happy for me and really accommodating my personal cool. circumstances at the moment. But I've just come back this weekend from Mauritius, where the island Some, Somebody is. has to. Somebody has to go. But somebody yeah, had to do it. It's 50-year anniversary Absolutely. of independence in Mauritius, Completely. 1968. Completely. And it's a big celebration marred, unfortunately, by allegations and scandal against the country's president, who is said to have misused um, her office to do special favours for a friend. The friend gave her a cash gift. She then used a credit card to buy herself some jewellery, and it's all gone very pear-shaped for a country that really doesn't feature very much on transparency indices on governance and corruption, a country that's had a very sort of stable transition of power uh, after each election, and a country that keeps on being a stellar performer on development and growth indices. Is this going to lead to a political crisis in Mauritius? I mean, we don't see Mauritius as a, as a place of crisis. We see it yeah. as a, a lovely holiday destination with some sugar cane and, and with some rum production and, and Phoenix lots of lager. Banks and private equity firms. And lots of offshore finance. Absolutely. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's created a lovely economic niche for itself, has Mauritius. Do they have a political problem on their hands on their 50th anniversary? They have a reputational problem in their hands mm. on their 50th anniversary, but definitely not a political crisis. Um, incidentally, on Thursday, I was in the office of the foreign minister of Mauritius, name dropping. Of course you do. But, but <laughs> as one does. But immediately after our BBC interview with the Mauritian foreign minister, we got a notice from um, the prime minister's office that he can't see us because of an urgent meeting. And the urgent meeting culminated in cabinet uh, issuing a directive to impeach the president. And so they'd really driven into a corner. Either you resign or there'll be a parliamentary process to impeach you. Again, as a country that has been through not a completely dissimilar process in the last three or yeah. four months, 
Mauritius seems to be doing, being a far more effective in dealing with its recalcitrant politicians. Completely. But you also have to remember that the president in Mauritius is an appointed role. It's not an elected role. So, frankly, it's easier to get rid of somebody who was sure. appointed than somebody who was voted in. Yeah. The real power behind the throne is the prime minister. That's mm. really the person who makes Mauritius tick. However, Amina Gurib Fakim, whom I did meet actually uh, when I first arrived in Mauritius because I'd met her before uh, and she was showing me around her medicinal gardens. She's a botanist. She was a wonderful ambassador for Mauritius to the extent that she's the first female state president. She's this uh, UNESCO uh, acclaimed botanist and chemist. She is an author, she's an entrepreneur, she's a great woman in leadership, and so she was a fantastic if, face for if, Mauritius. If she was a man, would she have got away with it? I don't know the answer to it either, nor do you, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> well, no, no, just wait. She, she, she sounds absolutely incredible, and one wonders think, whether I or not... I think if she was a man, yeah. um, she would have been fighting fit, and people would have been able to stomach it. The fact that she's a woman fighting fit, claiming her innocence, saying, impeach mm. me, fight me, people think that's a bit unpalatable. Yeah. Rex Tillerson, he was in Africa um, just last week, and then he got a kind of Pravin, Gor uh, Pravin Gordon phone call. Remember when Pravin Gordon was recalled <laughs> from London, Rex Tillerson got his recall call. And today he got fired. He did. But when you follow the American press, you will hear that apparently the phone call that uh, did the deed actually happened at 2 a.m. on Friday whilst he was still on his Africa visit. So it was all the logistics, the technicalities of sorting it out. Believe who you want to believe. The mm. bottom line is the U.S. Secretary of State was unceremoniously fired this afternoon. He was just coming back into the United States uh, after what seemed to be a fairly successful trip to Africa where he was faced with a barrage of questions around um, an incoherent, what people say is an incoherent foreign policy, what people say is absolute disrespect by Donald Trump towards Africa, disdain, and just a need to clarify a lot of the kind of business, economic, and um, welfare or, or, or um, social programs that the United States is involved in. And it's it's all fallen apart. But people say the two men never really saw eye to eye from day one. Yeah. They didn't see eye to eye. It, not on foreign policy issues on Iran. Not what, on what, did Donald Trump call, what did uh, Donald Trump call African countries? You don't have to say it. We toilets. all toilets. Yes, he called them toilets. And uh, yeah, we, we, but now here's <laughs> Donald Trump, who's appointed the ex now the, the ex head of the CIA to yeah. become the, the 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 new face of a, of American diplomacy. And we know that there are elements within the African National Congress and certainly within the EFF who are deeply distrustful of American foreign policy. Now you put the ex head of the CIA in as your as your Secretary of State, and that's going to endear America, but zero in many parts of this continent, surely. With all due respect, um, diplomacy, in as much as it's all about niceties, it's expedient and it's pragmatic. And I think in this instance, Donald Trump and the White House wouldn't really be too bothered what give it up, South yeah. African politicians think. This is about power dynamics within the Trump White House. It is about the fact that, to a large extent, when Trump came into the Oval Office, he brought a lot of foreign po policy functions into his office and in this way emasculated Rex Tillerson. They have argued over very strategic mm. geopolitical issues from Iran, as I said, to Russia, to this trade tariff that was introduced unilaterally. 
And so, back, back two to, egos at hand. Back to the Africa business report. I, I wrote a story. <laughs> uh, I wrote. I wrote a story eight years ago, yeah. um, coming back from New York, and I'd spent two weeks and I'd been speaking to heads of Citibank and to to, to lots of people within the U.S. Fed, getting a very clear sense that Uncle Sam really didn't give a damn about this continent. Then we went through a, a, a brief period of mm. Uncle Sam giving a damn. And we're going back to Uncle Sam not giving a damn for Africa. I don't think you could be that uh, blunt about it to the extent that there's the China factor. And the China factor means the market share for American capital in Africa has declined. It means the bidding for strategic resources is biased against the United States. And it means finding friends in a very complex and often hostile world makes it more difficult. So the China factor, the rise of South-South trade, BRICS and those kinds of things has really forced America to rethink its Africa strategy. The trouble is with so many um, uh, sort of caveats in American foreign policy around governance, democracy, and those sorts of issues, it makes it difficult just to engage any African state. And so what America is trying to do is make an aggressive push for Africa to reclaim lost ground, but do it in a way that doesn't compromise what America believes mm. are American values. Yeah. I, like, I mean, I just think they've, they've shot themselves in the foot in terms of, um, sort of putting a CIA appointee, Mike Pompeo. Um, as the new U.S. Secretary of State. Um, Africa outlook from the African Development Bank? Are, are we feeling good about ourselves? Depends where in Africa you are. So they've launched a regional-focused um, African economic outlook as opposed to a generic pan-African one, breaking it down into the five regions. And if you're in East Africa, you'd be happy because East African economies generally are doing really well, growing on average 5% or so, um, buoyed by countries like Ethiopia and big programs going on there. If you're from West Africa, you'd be a little bit concerned. Um, it's the commodities curse, the uh, down cycle in soft commodities, cocoa uh, and the like, oil. Uh, you need Nigeria to pick up because Nigeria accounts for about 70% of the GDP figures that come out of there or the growth prospects yeah. in the region. If you're in South Africa or Southern Africa, you're also concerned because the engine that makes the region work really well, South Africa, has had its own share of economic and political turmoil. And unfortunately, that's had ramifications for the region. So economic outlook, positive to the extent that all regions are growing, but the ones that are growing robustly are not the ones you'd expect. La Ratombele, president, uh, president, 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 she is I'll president. I'll take president, I'll she take president. She's president of the Africa <laughs> Business Report on BBC World News with our Africa Business Report here on The Money Show. The Money Show. The science of... It's the science of a company this evening. We did the science of Sapi a couple of months ago, and we kind of figured that because we don't get to everybody's results, um, and let's face it, the results interviews are a bit wham-bam, thank you, sir, um, uh, we get a bit more depth if we get chief executives of businesses into studio, and we just do a bit more of a deep dive into the business. And tonight, it is the turn of Blue Label Telecoms, and uh, chief executive Brett Levy in studio. The legend of Blue Label is it's called Blue Label because every time they do a deal, they clap a bottle of blue label does that still happen that's as true as it is bruce how many bottles empty bottles of blue label adorn the walls of your boardroom about 950 and how many of those have been generated in the last two or three years about half okay so the, <laughs> so the point being the deal flow has accelerated um, for Blue Label uh, over the last couple of years? Not only deal flow, it's a happy occasion in Blue Label, it's deal flow, it's the tradition and culture of Blue Label. So the only difference is when we started, we would have a bottle 
we'd have four or five deals on a bottle. Now we have one deal in four or five bottles. That's the only thing that's changed. So, so I mean, so you, you're commit, you're doing bigger celebrations. <laughs> Is there ever the risk that you, 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 of hubris creeping into a business like Blue Label? You've been so extraordinarily successful for so long um, that you start believing your own PR. You look at all of those beautiful blue bottles, and those bottles are glorious, um, full and empty. But um, they, they leave a lovely tone around the room. Is there ever a risk that you, you get ahead of yourselves? I think it's always a risk, actually, and I think that's where great people around you come into play, a great board, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's easier to get to the top than to stay at the top, so you've got to make sure that you're not lethargic, you're on top of your game, because as quickly as you got there, it's uh, even quicker to go down. So you and Mark, your brother, um, came up with this idea of distributing airtime. Um, nobody was doing it. Um, cell phones were big and clunky. Cell phones had to have a card and you would order your card and two weeks later your card would arrive, by which time you'd forgotten what you wanted to talk about on your cell phone and yeah. you'd found a ticky box anyway. But you revolutionized the way in which um, the, the cell phone, the airtime codes got into big retail, spaza shops, every single corner of any sort of retail outlet in South Africa. Was that the plan on day one with your brother? It was the plan, and I think uh, proudly to say the vision and strategy hasn't changed. Uh, the only difference was it wasn't actually limited to airtime. Today it's an easy explanation to tell people, but then it was we really believed that more and more products would go into a prepaid world, and if we could design this distribution channel that would distribute airtime today, if one day down the line it went prepaid water, prepaid electricity, bus ticketing, and so on, well, we would be positioned perfectly for it. And, of course, when you tell people today we do all the stuff, it's, it's normal, but... Uh, 15 years ago, when you told people everything's going prepaid, they thought we were a little bit crazy, actually. How did two kids from Delmas see that and nobody else does? That's a great question. And I think uh, everything starts somewhere. For us, it was really about trading. So we were always traders. At school, we were even selling car radios and TVs to our teachers. So I think entrepreneurship was built into us as a whole, not specifically to a product. But out of necessity, I mean, your dad died young. You were both young. Um, did, do, do you feel an obligation to mum to, to make ends meet? Is that why you started doing this stuff? Definitely. You know, we come from Delmas, from the farmlands. My father died when I was five and my brother eight. And I actually had a late sister as well who unfortunately also passed away at the age of 33. My dad was also 33. So I think, you know, you, we grew up as a very close family, this real hunger to do well. We never starved, by the way. We weren't a rich family by any means and we weren't a poor family by any means, but we never starved. And I think it created this absolute hunger to be successful, not only in work, on the sports field, we were pretty successful at school. And I think it just drove into the success of really wanting to do well and wanting to make money. But you were naughty kids. Very naughty. What kind of naughty? I think a good naughty. If you ask my mother, she might uh, disagree slightly. But, uh, you know, always... You would take stuff from your house and sell it to your friends and teachers. Absolutely. My mother used to say if she didn't bolt it down, Mark and I would sell it, which is not far from the truth. But I think we, we always grew up with respect. So although we were naughty, we did have respect. But we were definitely naughty. 
Did your mum get to see any of the spoils from the stuff you took out of the house and so? Because you know that in other people's houses, that's called theft. <laughs> so my mother, if you meet her today, she'll tell you she's the founder of Blue Label. <laughs> and she'll tell you that she gave us a seed funding of 35,000 Rand to start Blue Label because that's what we started it with. So she's definitely reaped the benefits from us. In the, I think she's a proud mom today. She... She likes to tell everyone she's not only the founder, but she's a, a mother. Um, the the 35000 now what did that get you? What did you, ha- I mean, you, two guys starting from scratch, 35000 did you write you a check, because that's what you might have done in those days, and say, this is your inheritance, kids, don't waste it? Correct, and it's not like we she had too much, so it was probably a, yeah. a third of probably what she had as a whole. So we weren't car radios in that day, so... You know, car installation stores were really big in the late 90s because if you bought a Mercedes or you bought a car, actually nothing came out with a radio, nothing came out with electric windows. So car installation stores were really big and we saw a great gap to buy wholesale car radios and drive in our cars like anybody and go and drop them off at installation stores, give a great service. And this thing took off like wildfire because these installation stores were doing so busy and they really had no one calling on. And then we found like a real niche gap in there. So they had no supply chain of their own. They needed reps to come in and you saw the gap and were the reps. Correct. Exactly that. And uh, we had one wholesaler in Pretoria and we would drive with our money, buy 35,000 rands worth, drop it off. If we had a good day, go back two or three times with the money and uh, see how much we could generate in a day. But you were smoking. That's, I mean, essentially that's what you were doing you were you were buying product you were distributing product collecting cash going and collecting more product that must have seemed like like, like dog work i mean it, it's a hard work i mean i'm sure you had a good social life around it and, and enjoyed the clients and enjoyed the interactions but that was hard 18 19 20 hour days for years and if you meet my wife she'll always tell you that i always told her don't worry we're going to work a lot when i'm young and by the age of 30 it will all calm down that never happened, so I told her the age of 40, and then we decided to buy South Sea stuff, stop telling her it's going to calm down. So we always worked hard, but I, I think when you enjoy what you do, it's not hard work. So 20-hour days for us is normal till today. You know, it's not abnormal for us to be first in the office and last out. And uh, when you enjoy it, I really believe uh, hard work is part of it. You can't do it without hard work. Who taught you? how to do business was it the school of hard knocks did you have an uncle somewhere who said okay this is a profit margin guys don't ever um, sell your goods for less than you paid for them um, and you'll be okay sure i really think we we taught ourselves so you know my mother was always a good stepping stone and always a good backbone to have a chat to she was really business orientated and enjoyed to have a chat around it but you only learn from the hard knocks. And when you're so young and naive and ignorant, you, you just got nothing to lose. You know, when you think back now of some of the things we did, I'm not quite sure if you had the knowledge, uh, I don't think you would do half the things. Yeah. So I think ignorance plays a huge part in it. And I think youth plays. I mean, we started, uh, I was 20, Mark was 24, you know, just out of school. So you got really nothing to lose. So I think that's in your favor and you should never forget that if you're young today. You've did, got did, all you get, did you get stung at all in those early days uh, through mistakes that you made, trusting people, too many deliveries without deposits, that sort of typical startup problem? Yeah, I got stung so often and uh, I still get stung today in the same manner and I think a little bit less. But my greatest, I think, lesson in life amongst many is people. 
I think it's you really trust in people and you depend on people and the ones that you actually trust the most are funny enough the ones in life that let you down the most so if I really could give a good lesson to everyone is watch people carefully <laughs> it's a it's a great place to be but I, I've been stung in you know I had a partner when I was younger it's such a great story because he used to say to me he was a, at the time he was about 60 65 and he said look at all these scars on my back why don't you just listen to me and I used to say but I don't need to listen I, I don't want the scars I know what I'm doing the truth is the scars on the back teach you the best lessons in life and you should listen. Have you got some scars? I've got lots of scars. <laughs> <laughs> Brett and Levy. I'm not 65, uh, by the way. Uh, just check. <laughs> uh, Brett Levy is Chief Executive of Blue Label Telecoms. We're looking at the science of Blue Label this evening and what a wonderful backdrop it is to the creation of a multi-billion rand business listed now on the JSE. Um, and these two guys um, rocking as, you know, as entrepreneurs, starting out on the streets, doing the deliveries, doing the sales, um, and doing the hard work, and still doing the hard work today. We'll find out more about Blue Label and how that happened and the innovation and moving into the prepaid space and revolutionizing the way most people on the African continent consume things like data and airtime and increasingly electricity. Maybe water's next. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, the science of Blue Label Telecoms, the chief executive, Brett Levy, in studio. So at what point do you get formal and you start doing grown-up business and you develop a business that's ready to list and then list it? How does that process work? So... Initially, straight at the beginning, we had the Ellerin brothers who backed us, uh, the late Sidney Ellerin and Eric, Eric who yeah. really taught us great governance from the start because we knew nothing, to be honest. This is in 2000. But you don't have formal training. You don't have the MBAs and the Harvard business degrees and all of that sort of stuff. This is really learning from the street. So you need people like that, and that's where the governance started. And then the PRC joined us in 2005 in an empowerment deal that was uh, really successful. And that came with extreme governance. So by the time we listed in November of 2007, we thought we were really ready from a governance perspective, to be honest. And we listed with good governance at the time. But I've got to tell you, in the last 10 years of being listed, you actually learn how much governance is required and how much you improve in governance every year. And that there's actually no art to governance. Governance is something that improves yearly. And it doesn't improve with mistakes, actually. It's governance that improves with structures with the right people. You're making, you're making governance sound lovely and fun, like it's a, a lovely no. picnic on a Sunday. It's a pain in the butt to, to, to get it all done properly. Do you wish that you weren't listed? I get asked this question so often and uh, I think my answer is so surprising. I love being listed. Uh, I don't You like the attention. Every six months you, <laughs> you have a room full of people and you get to tell them how much money you've made. I used to like that actually. But, you know, the truth is, you know, being listed, the only thing that I really don't like is I think things are just too exaggerated. So when we do something bad, it's exaggerated bad. And when we do something good, it's exaggerated excellently. So there's no middle ground in listing. And I think that's something that the listed environment can improve on. But, you know, for Blue Label's role of where we play and the image that we require and the, the respect that we need, listing was very important for us. So if I had to do it again, I would definitely do it all over again. It's not for everybody, though. Listing is a a very hard environment it's a tricky environment and it's not for the faint-hearted you have to have patience 
you know and always understand where you are at. But uh, if you are ready for it, it's a, it's a great platform to be. Uh, tell me about the deal. Did you ever do the deal with Net One UEPS? It was the most convoluted thing ever, um, where they were going to take a stake in you and you were going to take a stake in them, and then you together you were going to buy out C and then Net One was in trouble over the the social security grants, and it was just there were lots of uh, collision paths, potential collision paths in that deal. So the net one into Blue Label never took place, but of course the net one into Cell C took place. They took, when we took up our 45%, they did take up 15%. Okay, so you are partners, but they're not a shareholder in you. Correct. Are we you, are partners in Cell C. Are you glad they're not a shareholder? Look, I think uh, in Cell C it's been a great partnership, and in hindsight I think you know we, we do too many things similar in South Africa. So being partners would have been just too tricky. So I think in hindsight, it was definitely better for them and for us not to do it in Blue Label. But I think in Celsius, it has been a great partnership. And tell me about Celsius and the rationale for Celsius. Why it is that as a distributor of everything prepaid from airtime to data, you decided to own the network? So if you asked us this question many years ago, we actually had never planned of owning a network. It was far beyond us. Mm. It was out of our reach. We are neutral aggregators, so we are very close to the Vodacoms and the MTNs of the world. And Celsi was never an option for us. And as time developed and as Celsi found themselves in more and more trouble as the time went by, there came an opportunity for us which we grabbed with two hands. So... It sits in our artillery, it sits in behind of what we do, but it hasn't changed the vision and the model of Blue Label. We are still a neutral aggregator. We still deal with all the networks. We still have a tremendous amount to offer all the networks, but it's great to have a network in our stable. It's great to have the third network. You know, Celsi has no vision of being the number one or two network, but it is going to be a great number three network, and it's been restructured. It's got a new balance sheet. It's got great management, and I think it's got a fortune to offer the consumer in this country. So you really got two strong powerhouses in Vodacom and MTN, and you've now got a nice number three, and I think that's always good for a country. I think it's always good for a consumer, and of course for Blue Label, we have a network as one of the products, as one of the subsidiaries, and it will take us a, a long way in the future. When Alan or Craig came out of uh, retirement at Vodacom, um, then uh, went to Cell C and then fell ill at Cell C, but he came in very aggressively on price. He, he came in and, and he created a price war in the Cell market which was as a consumer of cell products was brilliant have you managed to work through that because it seemed to have been a little bit too aggressive he cut uh, quite close to the bone on that i think that's spot on I, I i don't think anyone can ever win the war if it's only about price it has to be about brand it has to be about offering it has to be about product and uh, i think when he came in in 2012 he came in with the right mission he came in with we cannot the pricing is out and he went aggressively but it's something that's not sustainable and as you've seen you know customers out there want a better price need a better price and i think in time it's coming but i think along with it comes great product and great service with it and it's the combination of it all that actually is important not just the price what have you achieved as a 45 percent shareholder very substantial shareholder at cell c that hasn't been achieved there up until this point so I think for starters, it's really just settling it down. You know, this was a really big restructure. You're talking about tens of billions of rands that were written off. Uh, a company that uh, without a restructured balance sheet was in serious, serious trouble. 
Uh, it all went through on the 2nd of August last year, so we're looking at, call it, six, seven months down the line. And really, I think about it is now just getting stuck into the vision, get stuck into what they need to deliver on, and you'll see the results only coming through in the third, fourth quarter of this year. So it's more about just consolidation and just sticking to the game plan. You're not feeling like you may have bitten off more than you can chew because multiple um, uh, executives and multiple shareholding structures have been tried over, what, 15 years? Not at all. Eh? Uh, we, we love this investment and we, we think it's going to be a great investment. You know, it's almost like the person who built the first eight stories of the building and then goes insolvent and the person comes in and then builds nine and ten and says, well, look how much money I made. But they forget to tell you that someone wrote off a billion rand for yeah. the first eight. That's why these restructures are so complicated. You know, you're looking at shareholders' loans that were written off or are sitting that haven't been paid for around $1.5 billion. You've got debt at Celsius level that was written off at 19 billion rand. You're talking like 30, 35 billion rand. And so we came in where the debt's at the right place, the EBITDA is now good service revenue. So the rest is for us to make, a, to, for us to fail, to be honest. We've got that eighth floor. We're now building the ninth and tenth floor. You don't have to get clever. You don't have to get too aggressive. You just got to stick to a game plan. Mm. Tell me about water metering because you mentioned that as a possibility and anybody who's in Cape Town knows that water is a very scarce and expensive commodity um, and South Africa is a, is a water scarce country. Um, we, we, many people are used to now buying their air, cell phone airtime prepaid. More and more people are used to buying their electricity prepaid and you've been running pilot projects with water as well. Absolutely. It's the next big project on the horizon. It's definitely coming. We've been running it now for about a year and a half, so it's nothing new. It will probably take up in the next 36 months, so the next two to three years is where you'll see a big take up. Water is a little bit more complicated than electricity, although every single household that has electricity, obviously most of them have water, but there's also a right for life in water. So there's X amount of liters that have to be granted for free to every household and then billing only takes place afterwards. So it's definitely on the rise and it's definitely one of those products to look out for in Blue Label. And it's just going to be another product suite into what we add, which should be great. Um, and is it working? I mean, are, are people adapting to it and adopting it? Absolutely. So wherever the trials are, is taking place. There's no upheaval about it. There's no uh, bad response to it. You know, people generally will just want to manage their own lives and prepaid allows you to do that. Does it change habits? I mean, do, do, do somebody who was using 10,000 litres a month now is doing a prepaid is cutting back to seven and a half to eight thousand litres or something? Absolutely. I think in electricity world, in the prepaid airtime world, it's an absolute management uh, way and you can just manage your way better. There's no reason to get a bill which you can't afford. So on the 27th of the month, unfortunately, when you can't afford any more electricity, you don't have electricity for the last three days. So the habits are changing, the control is changing, and it's just a much better format for people to control their whole life, actually. Brett Levy, Chief Executive at Blue Label Telecoms. It's a deceptive title because they do so much else and increasingly <laughs> in the world of prepaid will do so as well. Brett Levy, Chief Executive at Blue Label. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Koketso standing by in Cape Town and Karima standing by in Johannesburg. This has been The Money Show. Thank you for listening. Back again tomorrow. Till then, good night.